Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our May 20th, 2010 edition of the show, 4.07 p.m. on the clock here in Irvine, California. Before we get fully underway, got a couple of quick reminders for you. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. You can email me at rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash rglarson. Okay. The murder of America's 35th president on the streets of Dallas is one of the darkest chapters in U.S. history. Because of the non-investigation investigation of the event by the government-appointed Warren Commission, scores of books have been published attempting to fill in the blanks. A growing consensus see not a lone nut assassin, but a plot involving established elements of U.S. power. A recent book not only adds to that consensus, but more importantly, looks much deeper into the question of why. Its examination explores the American psyche and that which is unspeakable, that which we will not confront. The book is JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. Our special guest today is author James W. Douglas. Mr. Douglas is a longtime peace activist and writer. He and his wife Shelley are co-founders of the Ground Zero Center for Nonviolent Action in Polsbo, Washington, and Mary's House, a Catholic worker house for hospitality in Birmingham, Alabama. His other books include The Nonviolent Cross, the, non, the Nonviolent Coming of God, and Resistance and Contemplation. James Douglas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. It's great to have you. I've been uh, really intrigued by this book, and it's given me a whole new perspective on this uh, chapter in American history, this uh, dark and disturbing chapter. Um, can you explain to us first uh, the term the unspeakable and how that informed what you were trying to do with this book. The term comes from Thomas Merton, the great writer, Trappist monk, and author of The Seven-Story Mountain, a spiritual autobiography after the Second World War. What Merton meant by the term um, in his essays called Raids on the Unspeakable was a kind of evil uh, that is almost beyond speech because we don't want to go there. It's the kind of evil <clears throat> that underlay the Vietnam War, the nuclear arms race, uh, the assassinations of the 60s, JFK, RFK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, the kind of evil beneath which uh, there is a a, um, an involvement <clears throat> of a magnitude and of a nearness to ourselves that we just don't want to face. It corresponds to denial psychically, and over on the government side, it corresponds to um, a doctrine that, uh, 
that was begun in the uh, early late 40s and the early part of the Cold War, a, a doctrine of never uh, acknowledging an involvement in something that the government was profoundly involved in, plausible deniability. So, so this term, uh, the unspeakable, that uh, Thomas Merton coined, yeah. it actually explains a lot of things about um, um, the American psyche and American history, and explains. And you, you go into this in the book. Explains uh, how we can can destroy whole cities, such as Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Dresden, and and just kind of not really examine it too much. And uh, because it's just too horrible, and we don't yeah. want to admit, you know, we want to make it very black and white that they were the bad guys and we were the good guys, and it's a little bit murkier than that. And so we don't want to acknowledge that. We don't want to acknowledge all of these uh, uh, post-World War II CIA plots, assassinating foreign leaders, plotting coups against foreign governments, and uh, just some other horrible things that were done here at home, and, you know, Tuskegee experiments, all kinds of things. And then to this sort of ultimate event, in a certain way of speaking, of that these covert actions, these activities where we assassinate foreign leaders gets flipped around and it actually happens at home. Yes, the the kind of guarantee, uh, if you want to call it that, that was uh, given by the people in high intelligence offices who wanted that kind of um, lack of accountability for their undertakings in the Cold War, uh, under the necessity of winning the Cold War, they didn't want to have to acknowledge the kind of uh, covert activities they were taking on our behalf, supposedly. Um, and so they said, well, we're going to have to do these things, but they won't be done to citizens of the United States. They'll only be done abroad. They'll only be done to um, foreign elements that we think we have to uh, take out, uh, foreign elements that we have to overcome, overthrow, and do whatever is necessary. Well, that kind of guarantee is empty, and uh, when it comes to the assassination of the President of the United States uh, by the same covert forces that were killing the leaders of other countries, uh, but found it necessary from their standpoint to do it here. That's where plausible deniability uh, comes home and where we have to uh, deal with it. Right. And, and so this plausible deniability is a, is a trap. And uh, when you make it so that you can deny all these horrible things, the line keeps getting drawn closer and closer That's to home. That's exactly right. And goes all the way to the top, and, 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 and it is tied with this Merton's term, the unspeakable. And it also, to me, it brings up Carl Jung's term, the shadow, because we will not acknowledge our dark side. Yes. It comes back to bite us in horrific ways. And so, so that is, is, how I'm getting this, is how we can have... The, our leader, uh, you know, of this great republic, the president of the United States, who shot in full view on the streets of Dallas and not have a real investigation. And, and we accept 
for the most part, I mean, in, in established circles, that this Warren Kish Commission report is okay and that there was the lone nut killer when there is just reams of evidence to the, you know, to the contrary, but it's just let go by because we will not acknowledge all of these other things about who we are and what we are and what we've done. That's exactly right. It's, it's all, uh, all of a cloak, all one fabric with other areas where we don't want to go, but we especially don't want to go to the uh, assassination of the president because if we get into that, we're going to get into everything else too. And if we get into that, we're at the very um, heart of darkness in terms of our politics, our culture, our media, our educational resources, uh, and when it comes to um, democracy, uh, if the president can be assassinated with impunity by forces within his own government, we have none. We really do not have any democracy at all. So um, unless we go there, we're not going to get it either. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the dilemma. We don't want to go there, but we have to go there. And if we have um, the courage to get into that darkness and to acknowledge the reality of the overwhelming evidence and move into the whys of the assassination of the president, then we discover those whys are as present today in our own situation as they were in 1963, if not more so. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. Speaking today with James W. Douglas, we're talking about his book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. So, yes, let's, let's talk about uh, what you put forward in the book uh, of why he died, why there were certain elements of established power in the U.S. that saw Kennedy as, as, as a huge threat. What, what was going on? What were some specific things that, that JFK did in those last couple of years as far as taking a turn in a direction that the military-industrial-intelligence establishment saw as a major threat? Well, some say it began at the Bay of Pigs. I think it began earlier than that. I think it began the day he walked into the Oval Office. But a key early element uh, was the Bay of Pigs, in which Kennedy, uh, when that uh, attempted invasion by the uh, CIA-controlled uh, Cuban exile brigade, tried to establish a beachhead in, uh, in Fidel Castro's Cuba, Kennedy felt he had been profoundly lied to and manipulated and set up by the Bay of Pigs invasion, which, of course, was, was planned during the previous administration and was all ready to go when he came into office. And he said that he would... Definitely not sent in U.S. troops, no matter what happened in that uh, uh, invasion. And he was reluctant to be involved in it at all, but it was uh, huge, and he did not have the um, uh, power, he felt, and he also didn't have the resolution uh, to stop it. 
but he felt that when they told him that there was going to be an uprising in Cuba because of uh, all the elements that were opposed to Castro, when they told him the geography of the land which would enable them to to begin a uh, beachhead and, and move into um, covert action in Cuba and so forth and so on, they told him all kinds of things that were not true. And the purpose, Kennedy felt, was to make it necessary for him as a young and inexperienced president to send in the U.S. troops to win over Castro in the Bay of Pigs, something he refused to do, just as he said beforehand he would never do. And he said afterwards, uh, in terms of the manipulation he saw uh, coming uh, on him from the CIA in particular, I want to splinter, he said, the CIA in a thousand pieces and scatter it to the winds. And he fired, of course, Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, and he fired his primary lieutenants who were involved in the Bay of Pigs invasion. And we have to remember then that after Kennedy was assassinated in November of 63 and the Warren Commission was appointed, that's a misnomer. It should have been called the Dulles Commission. Alan Dulles was the most powerful influence within the Warren Commission he was appointed, uh, he was uh, Lyndon Johnson's key appointee to the Warren Commission, and uh, he, of course, was the fox investigating the murder in the hen house when it came to the assassination of John Kennedy. Yeah, many mainstream uh, news people and mainstream historians just don't seem to see the absurdity in that of a person uh, <clears throat> being murdered and another person who was recently fired by that person not only being looked at as possibly being a suspect but being but leading the investigation or highly involved in it you know there's just something really absurd about that and we can go into some other absurdities as well but i want to be really clear about this make sure everybody listening is very clear that uh kennedy was given a, a false Intelligence about Bay of Pigs. He was told that if you go ahead and okay this and let these Cuban exiles, not American troops, but Cuban exiles, go in there and invade and you know get the beachhead, the, the Cuban people will will no doubt rise up against Castro and you know everything will will be smooth then. And that they knew the CIA, Dulles, and everybody else knew that that this was not true but they were given this to Kennedy and then when the the Cuban exile invaders would be trapped and be in a bad situation Kennedy would sort of feel bad and feel like he had no choice oh well I gotta send in Marines or something now to, to help them out so, so manipulating the president lying to the president it was a covert action against the president and there were overwhelming political forces uh, working to make it uh, imperative that he send in U.S. troops, but he refused. And that uh, refusal, uh, drawing that line, um, established the basic conflict that he would have with his CIA, his military, and with the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff right through his presidency, because whether it was uh, Cuba or whether it was Vietnam, uh, Kennedy absolutely refused to send in U.S. combat troops into those struggles. And that's what uh, uh, was a, a definitive uh, 
conflict between him and his military and CIA advisors from beginning to end. He would not put U.S. troops into those situations, and he also felt that uh, he was being uh, set up constantly, not just in the Bay of Pigs, but in other ways, to do things as a president uh, in a military nature and to, uh, quote, win the Cold War that he couldn't conceivably agree to, including a first nuclear strike. And uh, why was Kennedy so dead set against uh, sending in troops? Was this just a, a moral issue for him? It was a moral issue in the sense that, number one, uh, they, they could not win in the case of Vietnam. And in the case of Cuba, he thought the whole scheme was cockeyed. Uh, and that uh, the CIA was acting in a kind of arrogant way and um, uh, assuming that they could overcome the island by uh, uh, that kind of invasion. And he, he went against his best instincts in approving it in any way at all, but he felt it had gone too far and he just had to uh, move along with it. That was a serious, serious mistake. So, so his reservations about it were were moralistic and uh, logistical. That it didn't, yeah, didn't so think it, it all it all went together. Yeah. Uh, Kennedy was no pacifist, and he believed in the Cold War at that point. But he came to have less and less confidence in in his own military advisors. And as he moved along and began to <coughs> engage in a back channel dialogue with Nikita Khrushchev. In the end, he wound up having more in common with Nikita Khrushchev, the head of the Soviet Union, and his, his main adversary in the Cold War than he did with his own um, national security state. So yep. he, came to, he came to reject the Cold War itself by uh, seeing more and more through the eyes of the enemy. And, of course, that was looked, looked upon as treason by, from the standpoint of the, of the military advisors around him. Yeah, that is one of the most uh, fascinating uh, points you make in your book, JFK, JFK and the Unspeakable, is this, this notion that, um, uh, well, this, we, we know that Kennedy and Khrushchev ha had, had these back-channel communications going yes. that started right around the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that they both, Khrushchev and Kennedy, came to the conclusion that that their own military uh, intelligence establishment w was at odds with the, them as leaders, and that they um, were both feeling that, that uh, I've, I've got to try to keep these guys at bay. These guys want to start a war. Both of them were, were feeling that on both sides, right? That is correct. The, 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 the secret correspondence had, act had actually begun the year before, and it was something that uh, Kennedy suggested uh, quietly when he and Khrushchev met in Vienna uh, in the uh, first part of 1961. But uh, Khrushchev actually wrote the first letter. That was in se September of 61. And uh, it, he had a, a very interesting uh, uh, way of beginning it. He, he began in a very contemplative kind of way from his his uh, home by by the sea, and he talked to Kennedy in this letter, which was a 26-page secret letter uh, about. He talked about the beauty of the the land and the sea where he was living, 
and the, uh, the, the nature of the conflict they were in, which of course was one that would uh, lead to nuclear war if they couldn't control it. And he said, Mr. President, we've got to recognize that we are like uh, those on Noah's Ark. So the atheist Khrushchev was using this biblical symbol, and he said, let's not argue between ourselves who are the clean and the unclean on Noah's Ark. We just need to keep the Ark afloat in this, in effect, sea of nuclear weapons. And when Kennedy responded to this very moving letter, um, he said the same kind of thing and consented uh, from his home in a Hyannisport where he wrote his first secret letter to the symbol of Noah's Ark that they needed to keep that Ark afloat. So even while they continued to struggle in this correspondence and, and uh, did argue over issues, uh, they were, of course, divided uh, on ideological lines, they began almost inadvertently to have a kind of secret trust for each other. And Khrushchev could see that Kennedy was being pushed in ways and uh, uh, being lied to in ways that Khrushchev could not understand better than Kennedy could because of the intelligence information he had. And uh, so they, they began to help one another get out of situations which they didn't always want to be in in the first place. Uh, it's not a simple story. Khrushchev uh, was, of course, trying to help Castro, and he feared that uh, Kennedy was, that the United States, maybe not even <clears throat> primarily Kennedy, would invade again as it did in the Bay of Pigs. And that's, of course, why Khrushchev put missiles into Cuba to deter the United States from such an invasion. But uh, once he did that, and he and Kennedy became involved in this enormous conflict in the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy felt at the height of the crisis that he was losing control of the situation and that his military were trying to force a war upon him, just as they had done in, tried to do in the Bay of Pigs. They were sending their uh, bombers, for example, across the line into the Soviet airspace to provoke them. They were firing test missiles that could have been <coughs> understood to be um, attack missiles against the Soviet Union. They're doing all kinds of things to provoke the Soviets into making just sort of some kind of a move um, in response, in which case that would uh, launch a third world war in which the U.S. had far superior nuclear weapons and could, quote, win with perhaps losing a few million on our side, whereas the Soviets would lose 140 million. Those were the kind of calculations that were going on. And in the midst of all that, Kennedy appealed secretly to Khrushchev, feeling he was losing control. He said, I need your help in a secret message that Robert Kennedy shared with Anatoly Dobrynin, the Soviet ambassador in Washington. And Khrushchev, when he received that appeal for help, that uh, he needed to withdraw his missiles because Kennedy was uh, losing control and couldn't get out of it himself, Khrushchev turned to his foreign minister and said, we have to to let Kennedy know that we want to help him. And at that point, everything in the Cold War turned upside down. And Khrushchev and Kennedy were connected more deeply between themselves than they were to any of their own national security advisors. Because Khrushchev's next sentence was, 
we now have a common cause to save the world from those pushing us toward war. They had that common cause for the next 13 months and began to work together, especially after Kennedy's groundbreaking American University address and the, um, the establishment of the nuclear test ban treaty, uh, Kennedy's withdrawal order from Vietnam, uh, and his secret dialogue with Fidel Castro, these were all steps that were an effort on the part of Kennedy and Khrushchev in response to Kennedy in the test ban treaty and in um, trying to move toward further steps in uh, disarmament. All of this was, was to back away from the brink that they almost went over in the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and we're speaking today with James W. Douglas. We're talking about his book, JFK and the Unspeakable, why he died and why it matters. And, uh, yes, so Kennedy at, at some point uh, realized what he was up against and realized that this uh, military, industrial, intelligence establishment was was really threatened by the way he was behaving, felt their their way of being, their their sort of job security was being threatened as cold warriors as uh, and so he he said he Kennedy feared that there could be a coup against him. He he made some kind of statement to this effect and he said it was something about that there was the Cuban missile cr- or I mean the the Bay of Pigs and if there are a couple of more Bay of Pigs type things, uh, I could be in real danger. Uh, could you correct me on that, or how, how did he put well, that? there was a novel called Seven Days in May that was written during the Kennedy administration, a very perceptive novel about a military coup um, against the president. And, of course, this was um, drawn from uh, observations um, of what was really happening and uh, Kennedy was out sailing one day uh, with friends of his, and they asked him if he had read the novel. And he said, no, but I will. And he did that very evening and talked about the, the novel the next day with them. And uh, he said, uh, in terms of this analysis of a, uh, a military coup overcoming the president um, within the context of the Cold War, seven days in May, he said to his friends, Yes, it could happen. And he said, if there were a Bay of Pigs, and of course there had been a Bay of Pigs at the moment when he spoke, this was after the Bay of Pigs, he said if, if that were to happen, um, people would begin to wonder about the, uh, the president, uh, especially people in uh, places of power, since they weren't, couldn't count on him to do what they wanted him to do. And then if there were a second Bay of Pigs, there would even be uh, more questions raised and more doubts by uh, people in high positions of power. And then he said, if there were a third Bay of Pigs, then yes, it could happen at that point, uh, a third point at which there was a, a profound conflict between the president and his national security advisors. And he said, uh, paused a little bit, and he said, but not on my watch. Well, the, the, the truth is that there were a series of, quote, bays of pigs in Kennedy's administration, and the first one was, of course, the Bay of Pigs. The second one was 
the Cuban Missile Crisis in which Kennedy made peace with his enemy at the expense of demands that were being made upon him, once again to invade Cuba, because this was a great opportunity because of the conflict with Khrushchev and Castro to send in the troops uh, a second opportunity after the Bay of Pigs. And instead of that, uh, Kennedy not only didn't send in the, the troops and not only didn't attack the missile sites in Cuba, which his military were demanding, we have all of the tapes of his, his um, uh, meetings with these people, and we hear them, especially General Curtis LeMay, making these demands upon him and him refusing to go along. But he not only did not go along with them, but uh, he instead uh, negotiated to pull our, this was a secret negotiation with, with Khrushchev, to pull our missiles out of Turkey in return for uh, Khrushchev pulling his out of Cuba. And that was uh, um, a, um, a kind of uh, tit-for-tat, a mutual withdrawal, in addition to a pledge that he would never invade Cuba, that the military regarded as a surrender to Khrushchev. Then, right after that, he did the American University Address, in which he basically said uh, he wanted to end the Cold War. June 10, 1963, the greatest speech Kennedy gave, a, uh, what uh, Khrushchev said was the greatest speech any American president gave since Franklin uh, Roosevelt, and it called for an end to the Cold War and began by a, um, a voluntary renunciation by Kennedy of uh, any further atmospheric um, testing. And uh, I hope for a test ban treaty, which in six weeks he then signed with Khrushchev, uh, doing an end run around all his military advisors who were all opposed to the test ban treaty. Uh, that was his fourth <laughs> so-called Bay of Pigs. Then he began to initiate a secret dialogue with Fidel Castro, through uh, the United Nations in September of 63, William Atwood, an advisor to uh, UN Ambassador Atlay Stevenson, was the go-between, and a reporter from Paris, Jean Daniel, uh, was an unofficial emissary from Kennedy to Castro, and was actually meeting with Castro when Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Uh, uh, Jean Daniel, this reporter, had met first with Kennedy who had given him a series of questions to raise with Castro, and when he was raising those questions, then came the news of Kennedy's assassination. And Castro, who had felt a profound hope at that uh, initiation of dialogue with Kennedy, was um, uh, struck into total despair. He said, now everything has changed. Now everything is going to change. And then, of course, Kennedy with his national security memorandum in October, just before he he um, he left for Dallas um, a month before, he said uh, in a an official government document that he was going to withdraw a thousand troops from the end uh, by the end of '63 and everybody out uh, by '65 from Vietnam. So that's twice as many so-called bays of pigs, and there were others too that uh, he had in conflict with his his military and civilian advisors in his national security state. So all of these uh, Bay of Pigs type events, all of yes. them, wh what they had in common was that they questioned the uh, continuation of the Cold War in its present 
incarnation, a sort of rolling back of it, a sort of coming to a less uh, confrontational relationship with the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and so we have uh, the military industrial intelligence establishment who we're talking about billions and, of, and billions of dollars of budget. Uh, yeah. We're talking about these people. It, it's a, a sort of a mindset, a, an ideology, if you will. And so questioning everything that these people are about and the, the greed and, and really the unspeakable nature of what it was that they were doing much of the time. All of this was, was being called into question and many many of these things would if we rolled back the cold war maybe all of this would come out and people would have to be held accountable for some of this so this is why this was such a threat to this establishment kennedy was a threat because he was turning in um, 180 degrees uh opposite uh, direction he wanted uh disarmament he wanted an end to the cold war he wanted even to identify U.S. interests with third world uh, concerns. He wanted to go to Indonesia, for example, uh, to visit with Sukarno, who was the leader of the third world uh, nations at that time. Um, he had been invited to, uh, to make such a visit uh, just days before he was assassinated, and he said, tentatively that he would agree to do that. Sukarno was planning to welcome him the following spring in Indonesia, which would, was, would have sent a huge shockwave through U.S. policy circles to have an identification between Kennedy and a man whom in the CIA context was viewed as a primary number one target. They wanted to assassinate Sukarno because of his blocking uh, mining interests in uh, Indonesia, his blocking the development of raw materials by the corporate worlds outside Indonesia. Uh, this is a, a total conflict between the president and his uh, his national security state. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the the second half of the subtitle of your book, uh, JFK and the Unspeakable: Why He Died and Why It Matters. And you alluded to this earlier in the uh, interview here today that uh, because we haven't dealt with this, why he died, right. and uh, dealt with the unspeakable, uh, we're still dealing with uh, the, the same establishment. And, well, okay, the Cold War ended, but now we have the War on Terror, and we're still dealing with this, well, Kennedy was given false intelligence about the Bay of Pigs, well, we were given false intelligence about the reason we had to invade Iraq. Is, is that why this matters so much? Yes, it's the same story. Uh, any president since Kennedy has had to deal with the same forces that uh, JFK did. And in each case, there has been had to be a decision, well, do I work for what Kennedy in his American University address called a strategy of peace, <clears throat> or do I basically surrender to these forces? And uh, it has been surrender after surrender. And, of course, the current surrender to these forces is 
not only Iraq, but uh, especially today Afghanistan and into Pakistan. We're fighting on all of these fronts uh, because it is, quote, necessary in a war on terror. And if one examines the different questions that were uh, Kennedy was involved in in Vietnam uh, with regard to, for example, ZM, who was the head of the government in Vietnam, uh, and then we have Mr. Karzai coming to Washington. Um, all the same questions are, are are found in terms of cli- a client government and in terms of uh, whether or not uh, uh, we uh, try to control that government with our um, covert forces and with our military forces and establish a military occupation there. These are all the same questions in Afghanistan as they uh, as they were in Vietnam. And Kennedy said, I do not want to continue that. And uh, ZM was assassinated against Kennedy's wishes in the, in the uh, month before his death. And um, uh, the manipulation that he underwent in regard to Vietnam, which was even more severe than what he underwent in regard to the Bay of Pigs, uh, where he continually said things, uh, again, about the Central Intelligence Agency in, uh, in particular, repeating that, wanting to splinter them into this thousand pieces and scatter them to the winds. Um, uh, unless we can learn from what happened to Kennedy, of course, the same things get repeated. Um, we, don't, we don't deal with them, so the next president has to, um, has to uh, uh, face the same things, except at a deeper level, because now it's gone um, over a period of almost 50 years uh, from the assassination of John Kennedy, and the water has gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and we're talking today uh, to James W. Douglas, and we're uh, discussing his book, JFK and the Unspeakable, Why He Died and Why It Matters. Uh, and, Jim, do you have a, uh, a website or any contact information or anything you want to give out? Well, it's Orbis Books in terms of JFK and the Unspeakable, um, and there's a there's a Facebook uh, page. I don't uh, I don't go to it myself. So I, I uh, uh, if you put in uh, my name and uh, JFK and the Unspeakable, there is a Facebook page, and a lot of people do a lot of talking about this on it. And I've done a little bit, but. Um, uh, uh, the main thing, I think, is to understand the story itself, and that's all in the uh, in in JFK and the unspeakable. All right, and uh, so let's uh, say if President o- Obama had had any yeah. real intentions of of bucking this establishment. I, I don't even know if he does. I, I'm not sure about that. He made some talk to that effect before he got elected. But if he did, what could he really do? And it, would he be in some kind of danger himself? And do you, do you think he, he has any intention of doing that? If he, if he uh, makes such a decision um, to move in a, um, a new direction, a direction which would be consistent with the statements he made uh, early on regarding his uh, hope for the abolition of nuclear weapons, uh, which is a very good and worthy hope and which is consistent with Kennedy's. But if he plans to carry out those intentions, 
he has to be willing to um, uh, risk all kinds of things, as did John Kennedy, including both his power and his life. That's the nature of the of the conflict. Uh, if if we're going to have a democracy in this country, we cannot have a military-industrial complex that threatens every president with. Um, uh, being overthrown or assassinated if he moves in the opposite or she moves in the opposite direction. That's uh, unacceptable. And it's not only John Kennedy we're talking about. Robert Kennedy went down in the same way when he was on the verge of being elected president of the United States. So did Martin Luther King when he was working toward a nonviolent revolution that would have turned us in a totally different direction. And uh, even his... Uh, supposed uh, um, rival uh, Malcolm X was working in uh, in consort with him in a way toward the end of Malcolm's life. All of these people were taken down by the same forces, a president, a president-to-be, the greatest nonviolent revolutionary in the history of the United States, and another uh, person who was turning in a, uh, a very redemptive way, Malcolm X. These were all taken down by the military, intelligence, establishment, CIA slash FBI, and um, that process has continued from that day until this day in all kinds of ways, and I'm not going to talk about 50 assassinations or 50 plots. We need to focus on a few key realities in order to see them, uh, use them as a, a lens with which to see everything else, and the key ones are the ones I've mentioned, and in particular, the Kennedys and uh, Martin Luther King and, to a lesser degree, Malcolm. If we can understand those events, we can understand where we are right now and the forces that uh, constrict uh, Obama's decision-making unless we can see those forces and get way out ahead of Obama, in which case uh, he will follow the lead of a popular mandate. But that's not happening. We have to be way out ahead of the president for the president to move unless he happens to be a person of very, very unique courage, in, uh, as was the case with John Kennedy. So d do you see that as the way out of, of we, uh, the people, r waking up, rising up? Abs abs absolutely. Uh, Martin Luther King is, is the key to this uh, nonviolent commitment, nonviolent movements uh, in the entire world, and especially in this country, over against powers of militarism and of corporate power. These are global forces. They aren't unique to this country, but we do happen to be the most powerful country in the history of the world in terms of the, the front-line military and corporate powers, um, in which case uh, that's really a profound weakness in terms of the vision that needs to be um, uh, realized, and that's the vision of Kennedy's American University address a, a disarmed world, a world of justice and peace. And if, if people have, have, have no time to do anything else than read a single speech uh, who are listening to this show, um, please read, uh, reflect on John F. Kennedy's American University address, the commencement address he gave June 10, 1963, far more important than his inaugural address or anything else he said during his administration or his life, and that's the prelude to his assassination. Yeah, the American University speech. You, you include that as a uh, an appendix in your book. 
Right, every word of it is there. Yeah, so in the JFK and the unspeakable, why he died and why it matters. And so, James Douglas, do you, do you feel hopeful? I feel hopeful, um, number one, because of understanding this story. How does one get hope from, you know, the assassination of a peacemaking president? Well, um, it was extraordinary what happened in this, uh, in this drama. The fact that the president of the United States turned to his greatest enemy, so-called, uh, the head of the Soviet Union, and said, I need your help, and the fact that the Soviet uh, premier uh, responded to that and said, um, you know, we now have a common cause, uh, that turned the world around at a moment when we were on the verge of total nuclear war. And now, if that's not hopeful, I don't know what is. And the fact that that uh, happened at the expense of their power and that they consciously made that decision to um, risk their power and their lives, in the case of both of them, but, uh, of course, Khrushchev was overcome and, over, and, and uh, wasn't assassinated, but he was overthrown the year after Kennedy was killed, and because he no longer had a peacemaking partner, that was a key to his, his being overthrown. The fact that that happened, that these two people came together, was a profound kind of enlightenment. It was, uh, uh, in terms of the, the Hebrew scriptures, it could be called shuva, a turning, a kind of... Uh, of uh, movement of conscience in terms of the Gospels. It could be called, uh, you know, uh, loving your neighbor, <laughs> um, uh, in the, in, 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 in loving your enemy in the, in, the, in the sense of Gandhi, not a sentimental love, but a kind of uh, uh, understanding of the truth in one's enemy. This was all happening between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Had it not happened, we wouldn't be talking about this right now. We would be in a nuclear wasteland, and uh, we wouldn't be talking about much of anything. And uh, so that's hopeful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kennedy died. Kennedy died as a result. But we have a huge hope, and the process by which Kennedy lived and Khrushchev lived, that's a process by which we have to continue to live in order that the world live. Yeah, and you talk a little bit in the book about uh, uh, JFK's World War II experiences, his brushes with death, and how this kind of informed who he was. And and it seems to me that it's his his brushes with death, his his sort of conquering that fear of death because of coming so close to it, that this enabled enabled Kennedy to act uh, less recklessly and and more compassionately more life affirming is it would that be correct yes and it went it went uh, way back to his uh uh his being a, a child death was always on john kennedy's shoulder he was uh ill almost every day of his life and he had one kind of illness after another uh and uh whether he's uh a, a, a child or a teenager or an adult in World War II where his uh, PT boat was cut in two by a Japanese destroyer and where he, he lost a number of his crew members and saved the lives of the, the others by his heroism in the Pacific. Uh, Kennedy was, was, uh, was next to death um, every day of his life, and he was in profound pain 
for virtually every day of his life. He didn't. He never talked about it. He just lived through it. He lived through that pain. Even his his favorite poem uh, was "I Have a Rendezvous with Death," and his his uh, wife Jacqueline uh, memorized that poem when he once he shared it with her, and she taught it to their daughter Caroline. And in a uh, a scene that uh, I you know I can never forget, uh, Caroline Kennedy, as a five year old, recited that poem to her father in the midst of the National Security Council. In the rose garden of the of the White House, uh, uh, shortly before his assassination, with men sitting around and listening to it, who were profoundly opposed to the president, and some of whom were plotting to kill him. And his his daughter um, looked into his eyes and and um, uh, uh, recited this poem in the midst of these men. It's a this kind of scene brings home exactly why Kennedy was willing for the sake of not only his child but the children of the world to uh, resist his military and civilian advisors and why he was willing to take death himself if necessary as a consequence. And that's uh, just what happened. Uh, I'm sorry, we're out of time. I I could talk to you for another hour. I want to thank you so much for being with us today, James Douglas. Thank you, Robert. Uh, A wonderful book, provocative. Uh, I think people need to check this out. People need to understand what this is all about. We can only move forward if we understand this. And uh, thanks so much for for writing this book. Thank you, Robert. And uh, thanks to John F. Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev, his partner in peace. You have a great day. Thanks for being on the show. Bye now. Peace be with you. Bye now.